Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include the cost of borrower credit, my interview with Rice Park's Nick Smith on a wide range of current capital markets topics from TBA liquidity to what REITs do, and a quick review on what last week's economic data points out there mean for you in the mortgage industry. Thanks to this week's podcast sponsor, Richie May, a recognized leader in providing specialized advisory, audit, tax, technology, and other services in the mortgage industry and in banking. To learn more, visit richiemay.com. Sometimes it's tough to find good news out there. For independent mortgage banks and mortgage subsidiaries of chartered bank lenders, the NBA reports that production costs exceeded $11,000 per loan in the third quarter, leading to a net loss of $624 on each loan they originated. The NBA's quarterly mortgage banker's performance report contains meaningful performance measures and benchmarks on originations and servicing for independent mortgage bankers. In the latest Q3 report, IMB's average pre-tax net production income per loan reached its lowest level since the inception of MBA's report in 2008. And the cost of determining a borrower's credit will be heading significantly higher. According to Word on the Street, rumored to not be coming from credit resellers such as credit reporting agencies, but instead the bureaus and Fair Isaac, customers are encouraged to speak with their credit source for the exact details on tiers, actual percentage increases, and timing to put speculation to rest. Let's like switch to some good news here. We're a month away from the day with the least amount of sunlight, solstice. And how about this for an opportunity? There's almost $30 trillion in home equity out there. Go help some homeowners tap into theirs. For today's interview, I want to welcome to the show, Nick Smith, Managing Partner and Chief Executive Officer of Rice Park, a private investment firm which manages capital through three complementary investment strategies, residential and commercial credit, mortgage servicing rights, and venture capital. Prior to Rice Park, Nick served as Chief Investment Officer of Blackstone's private residential mortgage REIT and was the co-founder and Chief Investment Officer of Finance of America Companies, a Blackstone portfolio company. Before Blackstone, Nick served as Managing Director of Two Harbors Investment Corp, where he built and led the investment platform for mortgage servicing rights and residential whole loans. I think it would be good for listeners to hear from you what do REITs do and what's what's unique about them. I think there's some some confusion about the space that they they occupy in the mortgage industry. Sure. Yeah, great question. For a very long time, the government the US government has promoted policies to encourage investments in housing. Um, and REITs are just one of those sort of policy channels that they that they use to encourage that investment. So REITs enjoy a special tax status that's that's favorable for their investors. Um, there's a variety of different types of REITs. I think, you know, for your listeners and, and you know, for my familiarity, the uh, I think we're probably focused on the mortgage REITs, which are which are the REITs that supply capital into uh, the mortgage finance system. And there's some, you know, there's some names that people are familiar with in that space, AGNC, Annalee, Two Harbors, MFA, Redwood, or, you know, some of the bigger names. And there's there's a handful of other um, other REITs that are also in that space. But the main thing that um, that differentiates them is that they have this special tax status. Um, in order to enjoy that favorable tax status, they have to invest a certain amount of their assets in qualified real estate assets, and they have to distribute the majority of their income back to shareholders. 
So there's some, you know, specific rules around how they have to operate in order to continue to enjoy those tax benefits. Um, and the main function that they perform is that the, these mortgage REITs, they uh, they supply capital into the mortgage finance system. So they're, you know, they're they're one of the many sources of capital that helps to finance U.S. housing. Um, they get a lot of notoriety, um, but as a as a group, they're they're a relatively small piece of the aggregate housing finance system. And let's move to the current market. Obviously, we've seen, you know home prices rose drastically the last couple of years. This year, rates have risen, and that's that's hurt affordability, especially for a lot of first time home buyers. Prices maybe have softened in some metros, or even come down in some of the hotter ones uh, from the pandemic, like like Boise. How do you categorize the current housing market? Yeah, I would I would say the housing market is clearly in a correction phase. You know, sort of fundamentally, the the housing finance system, um, or the I should say, the housing system is a is a financed asset, right? Roughly two thirds of all homes have a mortgage, and so um, the cost of a house is not really the sort of headline price that somebody pays when they buy the house. It's really the cost of the uh, you know uh, the mortgage payment to to um, to acquire that house. So, I mean, just I'll give you a couple of numbers, which I think sort of accentuate the point. Um, you know, the today's median home price is roughly four hundred thousand dollars, right? And the mortgage rate it's bounced around a lot. Yesterday, it rallied in a very significant way, but it's roughly seven percent. And at the at the lows, rates were right around a little bit less than, but right around three percent. So, if you just take a mortgage on a four hundred thousand dollar house. And you look at the principal and interest payments at a 3% mortgage versus at a 7% mortgage, moving from 3 to 7% is roughly a 60% increase in the monthly payment. That amounts to, at 70% financed, that amounts to about $8,000 per year. So a very significant increase in the, in the principal and interest payment as a result of the rapid rise in mortgage rates that we've seen this year. And the median um, household income in this country is about seventy thousand. So, an eight thousand dollar increase on a seventy thousand dollar median income is a very, very substantial part of like the average household budget. So, not only does increasing the mortgage payment um, shift the demand for housing, but it also prices out a lot of households from being eligible for. Um, certain loan programs that are used to finance assets because their DTIs are affected meaningfully. So you can see how a, a rapid rise in interest rates or decline like we saw you know right at the onset of COVID um, can have a, a very meaningful effect on demand for housing and therefore you know impact house prices. Now the, the other thing I would say about that 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 I think is is interesting and it gets a little bit lost. Um, house prices from December of 2019 until August are up 43% nominally, right? That's a very substantial increase. That amounts to about 15% per annum. So 15% per annum in house price increase is just not a sustainable rate of increase, right? In order for um, affordability to not be impacted, holding the mortgage rate equal, um, house prices really can't move up by more than 
you know, sort of GDP, right? Which is what um, household incomes on average would increase by. So if house prices outpace uh, real or nominal income increases, housing becomes less affordable, um, assuming the mortgage rate doesn't change. So the, the pace of home price increases that we saw during COVID and sort of in the last year were not sustainable. Um, so I think this correction is a, a very healthy event for the market. It would be far worse, and we saw that during the GFC, for house prices to get out of control um, and you know the resulting pop in those home, home prices have a you know impact not only on households but on the you know the global economy. So I, I think I think the the increase in interest rates, which has a significant dampening effect on household on demand for housing and likely on house prices, is is at this point a pretty healthy correction that um, will stabilize should stabilize the market for the future. And we saw after the latest CPI figure was released and and came in slightly below expectations, indicating inflation might be cooling, rates dropped. Is it as simple as once inflation starts to cool, we will end, we will cease to be in this rising rate environment? Is it when the the Fed signals what its terminal Fed funds rate will be? Until what point will we be in a rising rate environment? Maybe yesterday. Um, I'm joking. I'm, I'm not... You know, I, I, it's hard to handicap exactly the the moment that it'll happen, but clearly inflation is the driver of rising rates, right? And the Fed has been very clear that they're committed um, to getting prices under control and they're, they will use the tools that are available to them, which is primarily to raise the, the interest rate um, to get inflation under control. And we've had some very, very high um, inflation prints over the last year, and they were they accelerated for a while. They've stabilized and come down slightly. I think yesterday's print, you know, there were some mixed messages in it, but overall, obviously, the market received it as being very positive. Um, so, uh, as soon as inflation demonstrates sort of a clear and consistent downward pattern, then I think the rising rate environment will. We will stop immediately, and, and rates could rally. We saw we saw an indication of that yesterday. Uh, we'll see if that holds. Um, I think the other thing that the Fed is likely looking for is um, uh, the the unemployment rate is also at near historic lows. Um, there's obviously a relationship between employment rates, unemployment rates, and um, and inflation. So I think the Fed is also, and the market is also looking for some signals that um, there's a softening in the labor market. And I think um, a few positive inflation reports, meaning you know showing some progress towards coming down and some consistency to the the direction, coupled with some signals of softening the labor market, I think will will be enough for the Fed to at least slow down on their on their rate of increases. It's it's been quite significant the number of 75 basis point increases that they've they've put into the market recently. So I think that you know those two things that I mentioned would be enough for the Fed to um, take their foot off a little bit and sort of um, observe how the previous rate increases you know transmit through the economy before they you know do anything much more aggressive. And until the Fed stops these rate hikes. 
and reach it, you know, w- once they reach the terminal interest rate, what do you think will become a mortgage servicing rights? And and generally speaking, what have we seen in the market this year when it comes to MSRs? So the the mortgage rate has gone up significantly. Uh, anything that was originated in 2020, 2021, or early 2022 is now uh, mortgages that is are significantly in the money. Hundreds of basis points in the money. So there's there's been a couple of direct sort of impacts of the rate increase. One, the most obvious. When rates go up, mortgage servicing rates values go up. So we've seen an increase in valuation of MSR. Um, we've seen we've seen that in some of the um, earnings reports of the public companies, both banks and non-banks who hold MSR. We've seen the the prices that they hold MSR has been elevated. So that's that's an obvious impact. Um, there's there's a couple of other a little bit more subtle impacts. So the the rise in interest rates has clearly reduced mortgage volume in the aggregate significantly and has really put pressure on the the earnings of mortgage origination businesses. So many of those companies during 2020 and 2021 retained servicing, and that was something that they had not done historically, or at least hadn't done in the scale that we saw in 2021 and 2020. They had not done that historically. So they're sitting on a pile of MSR. And as rates have gone up and their their origination business has been under, I would say, pretty extreme pressure, we've seen a lot of selling of MSR to those businesses. And I think it, it's sort of the result of the obvious, which is one, that portfolios that they held are worth more money than when they retain them so they can extract some value there. And the second is it's helping to fund what is otherwise, you know, in many cases, negative cash flow origination businesses. So it's helping to support businesses that are under a lot of pressure. And so you're seeing a, a lot of pressure for them to sell those assets. And there's a lot of activity um, for MSR coming out into the market. So that's one of the other impacts that that we've seen um, in our activities. We're, we're a, you know, a pretty active buyer of MSR in the market and facing off against many of these same counterparties. Very good information. I have a note here that says one of the speaking points uh, in your arsenal is how to make money in a rising rate environment. Can you explain that a little bit, please? Sure. I mean, I think we touched on you know one of them. So we have three businesses. We have uh, an MSR investing business. We have a mortgage credit investing business. And then we we have a business that invests in companies that are operating in the prop tech space. So these are early stage companies that are innovating in digitizing um, in mortgage finance, real estate, real estate services sectors. So the, the MSR, which is what we were we were just speaking about, um, in a rising rate environment, obviously MSR goes up in value. So we we don't make a bet on interest rates. We choose to run an interest rate neutral policy. So we hedge interest rates. So we don't necessarily make money just because rates go up on MSR. But the principal risk of an MSR is prepayment risk, right? And so there's there's a lot of variability around what prepayments will be, you know, given a, a rally in the market or even sort of neutral interest rates. And we saw in 2020, when there was a significant rally, uh, prepayment speeds exceeded what most market participants' models were expecting. So in a rising rate environment, all of the variability around prepayment rates, which can be quite substantial, you know, gets gets meaningfully muted. Prepayment risk becomes a relatively minor factor. 
So if you take the MSR that that the market has produced in 2020, 2021, and early 2022, of which we've bought a lot, you know, these are MSR that are out of the money by hundreds of basis points. So you would have to have a very meaningful uh, rally in interest rates in order for prepayments to pick up. So that, you know, major kind of risk category of MSR for a certain cohort of MSR that are deeply out of the money has basically been eliminated. And so you're left with a an MSR cash flow that's highly predictable, senior in the waterfall. In our case, where we're investing in conventional MSR, there's relatively limited credit risk associated with it. So it feels to us like much more like just a, a bond. It behaves like a bond, um, but it's paying yields that are substantially above where you know most fixed income securities trade. So, so that's one way. Um, in our mortgage credit business, these are these are assets that are not guaranteed by the government, so they're not Fannie, Freddie, Jenny. Um, there's a there's a host of different sectors that, in the aggregate, comprise mortgage credit. And I would say, in the interest rate volatility and in the uncertainty that that has created around recession impacts and home price impacts, there's been a lot of capital that has retreated from that space. And so, as a result, we've seen spreads widen meaningfully. So spreads on non-agency assets, either securities or or whole loan assets have have widened to to levels that are, you know, sort of in the range of other other periods of time where there's been these acute crises. And um, we don't think the underlying fundamentals in the market are are um, while there's while there's a lot of uncertainty, the consumer remains strong. Um, there's substantial home equity in in uh, that US housing system. And um, and the underwriting standards that were applied to the loans that are out in the market are, and are being created today are really, really strong. Like there's a lot of discipline and rigor around underwriting. So um, we feel like we can invest in and the market can invest in in credit assets, you know, in a time where we can be very selective about the credit we take and it's yields and spreads that are really attractive, you know, when compared to historical norms. So that's that's another area sort of an opportunistic investing thesis, I would say. And then the third on, on the prop tech side, prop tech valuations, like many things, were were really, really frothy. The last decade, there's been a substantial amount of liquidity in the market. And with that liquidity, investors started chasing all sorts of esoteric assets. And we saw a lot of capital being directed towards uh, prop tech, right, technology companies. And valuations got, in our estimation, to be sort of um, a little bit uh, out, outpaced versus sort of the fundamentals. Those valuations have come down 30 to 80%, depending on the sector. But the basic thesis that underpins our, the- our investment thesis is that automation and digitization of real estate, real estate services, and real estate finance um, is, is like an unstoppable force. And um, we now have an opportunity to invest in those companies at valuations that are very, very attractive. So we can back great companies, great founders doing things that the market needs. Um, and we can be very patient investors and support those businesses. And, um, you know, we expect that we will have an opportunity to earn some really good returns on those investments in the future. I want to close by talking about the TBA market. And there's been a little bit of a liquidity cruncher, or at least fears of one. What are you seeing there in the capital markets when it comes to liquidity and, and demand for TBAs? 
Yeah, great question. Um, well, I mean, I think it's no surprise to people who watch the market um, that what you that what you highlighted is true. Um, the mortgage basis, right, which is the the spread between the the yield on mortgage securities versus the underlying like risk free rate on like a ten year treasury or, or a ten year swap, you know, is at levels that are um, at the at the peak where like three plus standard deviations from the norm. So they're extremely wide. Um, and there's, you know, I think there's like one fundamental reason for that. And that is that the Fed has been very clear that they are going to, you know, deal with this inflation issue. And the Fed has been the largest buyer of MBS since COVID. They own roughly a third of all MBS. So a third of MBS is owned by the Fed. A third is owned by money managers. A third is owned by banks. Um, and the REITs have a, a small slice of the, of the MBS market, which I would you know, characterize to include TBA. So the Fed being the very largest buyer for the last two years, all of a sudden they're not buying any securities. One, that, you know, that source of demand for MBS has to be replaced. And the private market has been crowded out for the last two years. So there's a transition period for as the Fed leaves that market and the private market comes in, there's a transition period for that to occur. And then the second thing is this this sort of uncertainty around what the Fed is going to do with the $2.8 trillion worth of mortgages in MBS form that it holds. Um, they're not selling. They're, they're just letting those things, them roll off as they pay down. Um, but there's some question in the market if, if inflation continues to be really stubborn um, and the Fed has to, you know, employ more draconian tactics to get inflation under control. One of the tools that it has available is the roughly three trillion dollars worth of MBS that it could sell um, to further push rates up. So there, there is liquidity in that market, but it's at spreads that are, you know, substantially higher. We think that represents like a really fantastic investment opportunity to be able to invest in agency MBS at historically wide yields and securities that are either explicitly or implicitly guaranteed by the U.S. government and that have very low prepayment risk on them given um, given the underlying mortgage coupons that sit in those pools. Those look very attractive to us as well. Um, and we would expect that that market's going to normalize over time and that spread will you know, come back to um, something that resembles a more of a historical average spread. Nick, I got to say, I really enjoyed this interview. Thank you for making the time today. I did too. And it was nice to meet you. What did we learn last week? Mortgage rates in the U.S. face the biggest weekly decline in nearly 41 years. Yay. Providing some relief after a rapid run-up that quickly priced out homebuyers. The average rate for a 30-year fixed mortgage was 6.61%, the lowest in almost two months. We also learned that existing home sales fell for the ninth month in a row, according to the National Association of Realtors. Home sales fell 5.9% month-over-month to a seasonally adjusted annual rate of $4.43 million, down 28.4% from a year ago. Blame high prices and high mortgage rates, which are negatively affecting affordability. Retail sales increased 1.3% in October, above analysts' expectations for a 0.9% increase. Core retail sales increased by 0.7%, which was also above market consensus. Producer prices increased by 0.2%, which is the same monthly increase observed in September, but it was below expectations for a 0.5% increase. Year-over-year prices increased by 
the fourth consecutive month where the annual growth rate decreased from the previous month. Industrial production contracted by 0.1% as mining and utilities output fell during the month. Housing starts fell 4.2% in October to an annualized rate of 1.425 million, but remained above the average rate over the last 10 years of 1.206 million units. The long-run average over the entire data series dating back to 1959 is 1.434 million units. A clear shift in inflation expectations as well as a slowdown in the pace of interest rate increases next month could signal we are near the peak in rates and maybe provide some stability in housing demand. This week ahead is anticipated to see reduced market volume as it is Thanksgiving Day on Thursday, followed by an early close on Friday, with many participants likely taking the full week off. The economic calendar is full of month-end treasury supply, including an auction of $42 billion of two-year notes and $43 billion of five-year notes today. As for economic releases, today there is just the October Chicago Fed National Activity Index, while tomorrow brings Philadelphia Fed Non-Manufacturing, SNP, PMI, November Flashes, and Richmond Fed Manufacturing and Services Indexes. On Wednesday, there are durable goods, consumer sentiment, and new home sales. We begin the week with agency MBS prices nearly unchanged from Friday and the 10-year yielding 3.84 after closing last week at 3.82%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. What's the worst insult you can say to a ghost? Get a life. (laughs) Thanks again to Richie May a recognized leader in providing specialized advisory, audit, tax, technology, and other services in the mortgage industry and in banking. To learn more, visit richiemay.com. Questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities? Send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.